Hey, this is a brief note here before you start listening. This episode was recorded during a period of technological change for reversing climate change. We're replatforming, trying to figure out what exactly uh, we're doing, what tech stack we use to record podcasts, and this one didn't come out perfect. There is a fair amount of crinkling from microphones I was unable to remove in post, and also, it sounds like Tom is being uh, extra curt. And Tom, you're perfectly nice from our experiences in person that uh, I've seen to date, but it feels like uh, you're answering every question, champing at the bit to do so, to the point of cutting people off and starting like a second or two earlier than a normal person would, and that's not Tom's fault. That's uh, just the way that it was recorded. There was missyncing in the audio. Um, I think the episode is still good. Project Vesta uh, is representing here, and it's a very interesting show. I hope you enjoy it. Please don't hold that too much against us, and thank you so much for listening. Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change, and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. Today I have with me Project Vesta. We have had Eric Matzer on before, and now we have some more of his colleagues on because they have exciting things in the works, exciting announcements. Today I have co-founder and director of development, Kelly Earhart. Hey, Kelly. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And we also have Tom Green, who is executive director of Project Vesta. Hey, Tom. Hi, Ross. Thanks for having us. It is my pleasure. We have been in touch for a long time now. Our paths intersect. And well, big things are in the works for, for you. I'm very happy to see all the attention and uh, people are talking about olivine and enhanced weathering. So we'll get into the news, but we should probably start at the beginning. What exactly is Project Vesta? So let, let me set a little bit of context first for you. As many listeners will, will know, we are now in a situation where we have increased carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere to almost double what they were before the Industrial Revolution. And that has started to cause the planet to warm up. You've got global temperatures have increased by over one degree C. You've got a 40% reduction in Arctic sea ice. The effects are very, very clear. And as we look forward, what we see is that Reducing carbon dioxide emissions will not be enough to solve this problem, will not be enough to avoid very dramatic scenarios in which there's widespread ecological collapse and the displacement or death of billions of people. So what we need to do at this point is we need to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and we need to do that at large scale. So. We're on the brink of emitting, as a planet, about 50 gigatons of carbon dioxide every year. So what we need is solutions that can come to maturity within this decade that can capture a meaningful portion of that. 
doing so will enable us to buy the time we need to execute a transition to a low carbon or zero carbon economy. So the context is we absolutely must remove CO2 from the atmosphere at massive scale beginning this decade. That's true. Yeah, it's a good case for carbon removal. Where do you think Project Vesta fits into this mix? Yeah, sure. So that being said, Project Vesta kind of looked to the planet and found that nature has a way of turning atmospheric carbon dioxide into its most permanent form, rock. And it's been doing it for billions of years. And so that's kind of the process that we all probably learned about in like seventh grade geology. It's called the carbonate silicate cycle. And that's where rain falls on volcanic rock and pulls carbon dioxide out of the air. So what we've done is taken that process and sped it up by taking a volcanic rock called olivine, which we found to be one of the most efficient rocks to do so, grinding it up and then creating green sand beaches with olivine. So at those green sand beaches, there's natural grinding that will happen through the wave action. So waves come and the grains of olivine will clash into each other. And then more surface area of olivine is exposed, meaning that chemical reaction removes carbon dioxide faster. And as the carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere, it goes into ocean organisms and then eventually settles on the bottom of the seafloor as limestone. That is very cool. We've done some episodes before on enhanced weathering, but we haven't done as many on how that might work in an aquatic environment. How do you think that's different from just taking relevant waste rock from mines and spreading it out with a large surface area or putting it in some sort of machine on land that's tumbling it in some capacity. What, what do you think is the, the difference there? So one, one key difference is, and it re- really refers to our vision as an organization, which is to turn a trillion tons of atmospheric carbon dioxide into rock. And so as Kelly mentioned, what happens at the beach, when the olivine breaks down, the carbon dioxide actually gets pulled out of the atmosphere and becomes bicarbonate in the ocean and gets used by marine organisms as calcium carbonate in their shells and skeletons. And so when those organisms eventually die and those shells and skeletons sink to the bottom as ocean sediment, it becomes ultimately limestone. And that stone is subducted into the Earth's crust locking it up for, at the very least, millions of years. And so this really speaks to a key principle of carbon dioxide removal, which is permanence. We have to make sure that we are locking the carbon up in a way that is, on human-relevant timescales, permanent. Yeah, and the other thing I would just add to that, speaking specifically to the the land use, is that when olivine is spread on land, the weathering process is generally a lot slower. And so what our project endeavors to do is speed that process up by an order of magnitude by using the free energy of wave motion, as well as all of the different organisms that exist inside of an ocean ecosystem to additionally speed up that process beyond what what it could be just through spreading it on land. Got it. Okay. Uh, I want to ask about this specific geological point, Tom, that you made about subduction. Are you saying that so these organisms, they have shells, they die, they float to the bottom of the ocean. And you're talking about subduction such that tectonic plates, one goes over the other, and that land mass goes underneath other land in the form of, of a tectonic plate. Is that what you're talking about? That, that's what is accounting for those millions of years of storage is that you're betting on 
that type of subduction? Or am I a geological noob and I, I'm totally wrong? <laughs> but essentially, you're right. This is how limestone is made. All sedimentary rock that you see above the surface of the land was once under the ocean. And that's where it was formed, on the ocean bed. Uh, the limestone is formed on the seabed. And then what happens is it forms in layers. So you know the older layers have fully formed into rock. The newer ones are still more in a like, formation. And then, yeah, over time, that builds up in layers and then through tectonic movements, it gets incorporated into the Earth's crust. One pretty sort of interesting sort of anecdotal point in this is that eventually what happens to that rock, some of it gets into the, the mantle, the liquid part underneath the Earth's crust. And this obviously takes many millions of years for that to happen. Some of that will actually come out of a volcano in the future. And so volcanoes actually release carbon dioxide. The weathering process Kelly described at the very beginning, where rain falls on volcanic rocks, causing this chemical reaction, which catches carbon dioxide, is the natural process by which volcanic carbon dioxide has been captured into rock over the last billions of years. You use the word, is that what we're betting on? I mean, we're, we're betting on this natural process, so we don't really view that as a bet, more of a harnessing of something that has already been happening here for billions of years. Okay, but for the purposes, we're going to get into permanence because it's a really big part of this discussion, especially as we get to the, the stripe portion of the show. But it's still relatively permanent if it's just at the bottom of the deep sea and it's floated down there and it hasn't been subducted. That's still relatively permanent, right? Because we can't count on millions of years from now, like who knows what's going to be subducted and what actually goes underground. Yeah, that's correct. correct? I'll, I'll say a couple of things about that. First, it does not need to be subducted by tectonic movements before it's captured. It will sit there on the bottom and it will form into limestone sitting there on the bottom of the ocean underneath the large pressures that are found there. So it will form into rock naturally as part of that process. The other thing that's important here is that the chemical reaction here is the equilibrium between dissolved carbon dioxide in the water, which is carbonic acid, and bicarbonate, which is another form of carbon dissolved in the water. And what our process does, what this enhanced weathering process does, is when the magnesium silicate, which is what olivine is made of magnesium silicate. And so the magnesium silicate, when it dissolves in the water, the silicate combines with a proton, an H plus ion, in the water does is shifts the carbonic acid to bicarbonate equilibrium towards the bicarbonate side, which then allows the water to pull more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, forming carbonic acid in the water. So even before any marine organism has got involved, the water is a natural enormous sink for bicarbonate, which captures it permanently in solution before it even needs to be taken up by a marine organism. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. One of the classical problems with carbon removal, I don't even know if this counts as a problem, which is one of the things that is an ongoing discussion, perhaps, is that as we pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, the ocean and the atmosphere are in this sort of equilibrating relationship, and the ocean will off-gas some of the captured CO2 that's stored into it. So we actually have to pull out more than we might think out of the atmosphere because the ocean is going to push some of that CO2 back from out of it back into the atmosphere. And one of the reasons this is concerning or, or something to take account of 
is because the ocean is acidifying uh, with increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So if you're able to do this right inside of the ocean to start, do you think this method of carbon removal will be able to, to de-acidify the ocean in a quicker fashion? Yes. So as you know, and as many of your listeners I'm sure know, ocean acidification is a major problem that we're now facing. The carbon dioxide that we have emitted has dissolved in the ocean, which has, or a large part of it has dissolved in the ocean, the majority in fact, and that has made the ocean more acidic. And that is affecting numerous types of marine wildlife. For example, there was a study that came out, I think it was earlier this year, showing that Dungeness crabs are actually starting to dissolve, their shells are starting to dissolve because the water has become too acidic for them. So the destructive effects on marine ecosystems from ocean acidification, or OA, are meaningful. What the enhanced weathering process does is it deacidifies the ocean. And so when we spread olivine sand on a beach or coastal area, as it breaks down, it actually makes the ocean less acidic, which in turn can potentially support the growth of marine ecosystems, increasing the health of local wildlife and potentially providing an economic benefit by making aquaculture yields improve or helping fisheries because of the overall benefits to the food web that reducing OA causes. Great. I think that is a very nice summation that allows people to have enough knowledge to to work with to understand the science behind what you're doing. But you've been working on this for a while, both of you have, and Eric and your other colleagues, and you just had your first customer, which gigantic congratulations. That is a huge milestone for any organization. So what's been happening with that? I'm sure you get a lot of attention at this moment. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. It's, it's been a great and busy <laughs> few weeks since the Stripe announcement. So for those who are not aware, Stripe conducted a process by which they put out a bid for proposals to purchase negative emissions. And so we were one of many organizations which submitted proposals to Stripe saying that we can sell negative emissions. And so and Stripe picked us as one of four organizations from which to purchase these negative emissions. So this was huge news for us because not only is it our first our first sale, our first earned income as a nonprofit, as opposed to the philanthropic donations that we've been getting, but also it's the world's first purchase of negative emissions weathering. So that's really helped us to validate that this is something that could actually work. Part of the problem we face is that, speaking frankly, it sounds like magic. You know, wait, so you take these crystals and you put them on the beach and somehow that <laughs> magically captures carbon. A lot of people are understandably skeptical because it just it sounds too good to be true. And so getting the validation of a public negative emissions purchase from a company that's very dedicated to reducing its carbon footprint and ultimately becoming carbon negative was a huge step for us. And we've been getting a lot of interest and publicity since then as a result. And Kelly, you're one of the co-founders. Did you imagine that this would be a nonprofit? Was it a nonprofit from the start? Yeah, it, it was. Okay. But you're, you're in sort of, you know, high tech Silicon Valley kind of area. <laughs> like, why would you not want to make this a business? If you're successful, surely you'd be a billionaire. 
<laughs> sure. Yeah. It has been a nonprofit since the start. And I have experience in kind of commercializing sustainable te technologies in the past, but we started nonprofit as a project to reverse climate change. And for us, that meant not being manipulated by the market and not being able to kind of be dissuaded by capital interests. And so our main goal here is to make a meaningful impact on climate change and scale the research and the development of the technology of enhanced coastal weathering. And so the piece of that is that it's a nonprofit. The other piece of that is that we're going to open source everything that we find within Project Vesta so that this technique can scale across the world and achieve that goal of removing gigaton scale carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Yeah, not the first time you've been asked that one. <laughs> one question I saw, there's recently an air miners event that had the various companies or organizations that Stripe purchased its first negative emissions from all participated in, which was a great event. If you're not a part of the air miners community, definitely recommend you doing so uh, and becoming a, a part of it. I saw a question in the chat that caught my attention. I hadn't seen it discussed before, which is, you said the, the composition chemically of olivine is magnesium silicate. Right, is yeah, that what you said, Tom? Magnesium silicate. Yeah. Okay. So as this uh, chemical interaction happens, when olivine interacts with seawater and the energy of water moving, is there any risk that the magnesium that's coming off of this and going into the water has any sort of adverse effects? Or are there risks that exist with enhanced weathering, especially in an aquatic environment that we should be aware of? So the magnesium silicate, when it dissolves, let's talk about the two components of that. Magnesium is already present in large quantities in seawater. The amount that we add is not significant. Silicates are also present, and they're actually used by diatoms. And in some cases, we can actually potentially foster diatom growth through the extra silicates that become available. So we're not too concerned, and our ecotoxicologist collaborators are not too concerned about that. There are questions about trace elements that are found in the olivine. So the most commonly talked about one is nickel. Nickel is present in a lot of olivine reserves, and nickel above a certain concentration can be toxic to marine organisms. So this is an area that is a big focus of study for us. We are studying that both in the lab and we'll also be studying it at our pilot beach, monitor the nickel concentrations carefully both in the water and even in the tissues of local marine organisms to make sure we fully understand any impacts. For what it's worth, the ecotoxicologists that we are working with believe that this will not cause a problem, that the nickel will not be bioavailable for various reasons, and that it will be in low enough concentrations that it will not cause any harm. But it's something we are going to be monitoring very closely because, of course, we don't want to solve one problem and cause another at the same time. We want to make sure that everything we do is not just helping the climate, but is also locally ecologically sound. Yeah, one related question I have to that is the scalability in general and how that works, because maybe it isn't a problem at these lower levels, but if you're trying to do a trillion tons of CO2 turned into rock, I wonder if it becomes a problem then. But then again, I had a, a friend who I am no longer so close to, and maybe this answer will tell you why, but he, he was saying, like he opposed the idea of Nori because he said if we were successful, we would basically bring back the Pleistocene Ice Ages and like, and like return. I was like, I would love to have that problem. I don't know that we're going to get to that extent. Why wouldn't people just stop paying for it if it's going to push us into out of an interglacial period? I don't, 
I don't know. So is that similar for you? Is this sort of like a question like, I would love I to have that problem. That's a fair way of saying it, yes. I think um, getting to the kind of scale that we need to get to in order to capture gigatons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is something that we'll be doing in stages. And we'll be measuring the local and regional impacts at every stage. And, you know, as, as a reminder, we broadly expect this to, at least in some ecosystems, have potential benefits. You know, reducing ocean acidification is, is going to be a good thing. And there's no way we can really overshoot on that based on the numbers. You know, I mean, just to pick up the point of, are we going to trigger another ice age? People sometimes ask us that. Well, what if you guys are too successful? And the reality is, we're in a race against time here. The probability of us overshooting is close mm -hmm. to zero. And by the way, if the planet did start to get into a out of control kind of cooling phase, we've already got a lot of data on how to warm the climate. We know how to do that. We're really good at that. So <laughs> I'm not concerned about yeah. accidentally triggering another ice age. <laughs> Very cheeky, but I approve. <laughs> another scalability hurdle I could foresee is to what degree uh, is olivine or other types of minerals available at scale to be deployed? I imagine if, if this became a primary way of carbon removal for the entire planet, there would be an entire industry devoted towards research and development that uh, is trying to find substitutes and uh, enhancing the ability to produce rock and to find rock and to mine rock and to deploy it at scale. Is that broadly how you're thinking about that too? Or is there some sort of natural limit to the numbers that are available to use in this way? Yeah, there's definitely more than enough olivine on Earth than we need to reduce emissions by the amount that, that is needed to reverse climate change. And so olivine is one of the most abundant minerals on Earth. It makes up over 50% of the upper mantle. And we only need seven cubic miles of olivine, which is a tiny fraction of what is available on the planet. Yeah, exactly. And, and just one thing to add to that is, as Kelly said, there's plenty of olivine available and it's all been mapped, actually, where the reserves are. The other thing is the infrastructure. And part of the good news there is there's plenty of mining. What we need to do here is we need to mine and quarry olivine and transport it to the places where it can do its work. And the infrastructure to do that already exists. Mining equipment, transportation equipment to take it to ports, which is where we'd also need to get it to, is all already in place. And so the scalability of this solution is really remarkable because it doesn't rely on building you know new factories everywhere to do new things it doesn't rely on some massive new global supply chain so much of what needs to be done is already in place and once we can demonstrate that this process works and is safe we believe that the scale curve can be really quite rapid is it hard to measure the permanence on a beach or underwater how do you guarantee that or reasonably assure people, I guess you could say. This is one of the long-running difficulties of, of soil carbon, which is more where Nori is focused at the moment, is how do we model and test for and make sure that what we say is happening actually is happening. How do you do that for something like olivine? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, right? Because a lot of technologies, if you're capturing the carbon in some sort of solid form, then it's you know you can point to that piece of it. Whereas with us, it's frankly more complicated, but it can be done. And we have a broad network of scientific collaborators. And referring back to what Kelly was saying earlier about being a nonprofit and having an open source approach, we've been able to reach out to leading scientists in all of the kind of multidisciplinary 
fields that are relevant to this. So you know, as part of that outreach, we've been researching that exact question of, well, how can we measure this in a way that is most effective? And, you know, at our pilot beach, we'll be taking samples of the water at different depths. We'll be taking core samples of the sand on the seabed to and measuring a very large number of, of chemical and biological indicators, which taken together will enable us to chart what's going on to be able to track effectively the carbon dioxide as it comes into solution and then and then where it goes after that and all of these data will be available for our network of scientists to to review to publish papers on that will be peer reviewed so we can build a scientific consensus that shows what the model is for exactly how much carbon dioxide is captured and exactly how does the olivine basically stay where you dump it? Or is there, I know there was talk of putting some of this olivine in the English Channel because of the amount of turbulence in the water that would have enough energy and turnover such that it was removing carbon dioxide at pretty great speeds. But something like that latter case where it wasn't just dropped on a beach somewhere sounds very hard to track, uh, especially as the, the timelines expand. Is that yeah, uh, the case? Here's how it works. Um, we're going to be doing a series of different olivine deployments. And the first one that we're doing is in this cove. And there's actually a photograph of the, the cove on our website if anybody wants to, to check it out. And if you look at it, you'll see that it's open to the ocean, but it's relatively enclosed, meaning it has a fairly low refresh rate of the water. So once the water enters the cove, it takes at least two days on average to exit. And so in an environment like that, the biogeochemical changes in the water build up significantly. We can use those to track exactly what's going on. We will be gradually doing a series of experiments to understand how different coastal marine environments have different what we call weathering rates. So how quickly does the olivine break down? Where does it go? What happens to it? And so when we get to the point where we're spreading olivine over large areas of shelf seas, such as the English Channel, as you mentioned, we will no longer be trying to measure every detail of the water at that point. At that point, we'll have enough data that we can extrapolate what must be happening in areas like the English Channel. And to answer sort of, I guess, the actual question that you asked about where does it go, it depends on the, it depends on the marine environment. But as you know, you know, when you sand on the beach will, will be transported by wave action and by currents. And of course, olivine sand will be subject to the same forces. So it moves around and that movement is actually a key part of the weathering process, which enables it to break down. <laughs> to what extent are these effects localized versus distributed across the entire ocean world? Is it something like the English Channel or some of these other areas would have a, a more basic composition relative to other parts of the, the ocean that are more acidic? Or does it all even out pretty quickly? Yeah, so the, the ocean acidification effects will be primarily more local and then gradually will even out as the diffusion happens and the, the water mixes and, and it all spreads out into the ocean, the main ocean acidification benefits will be local. So deployment sites will see a meaningful decrease in ocean acidification. Uh, we'll have to do this at really enormous scale before we start to see an ocean-wide effect on OA. A lot of where this matters is in coastal environments, you know, where you have a lot of the species that are more sensitive to the pH 
of the ocean. So that effect will be a little bit more local based on the dissolution of the olivine and where that's happening. The effects on the atmosphere will be much more global because there's just a lot more rapid mixing that goes on there. So we don't expect to see enormous disparities in carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere depending on where we do this. We expect that to get distributed fairly quickly. Yeah, and just to speak to that that localization of deacidification, I think that's where we are really excited about running experiments of various co-benefits of how this might impact, as Tom was saying, the local organisms of that system. You can imagine stacking functions with kelp farms or oyster farms and seeing if there's any benefit by combining processes. That part I never thought about prior to this podcast, and that's very exciting to me too. I know there's localized interventions people are experimenting with to save certain coral reefs. And mm-hmm. I wonder if this could be a similar thing where if you're able to deacidify strategic fisheries that would otherwise be severely harmed or outright killed, maybe this could, uh, like like the Dungeness crab sounds you know perilous. Maybe you could put the olivine there <laughs> and we could still have crab. It's an open question and it's something that we're really excited to do some research on. Yeah, that is cool. Because one of the things about this conversation, soil gets a lot of play in particular because of the co-benefits beyond just the carbon sequestration element. But industrial and uh, more hybridized approaches don't have as much of that often. Some of them do, but not all of them do. And I didn't expect that with enhanced weathering. But if that is a co-benefit, I think that's a huge deal. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I think industrialized processes, while they're important to do, to continue doing research on, of course, they, most of them don't come with co-benefits and a lot of them actually come with externalizations. And so for us, yeah, we, we're really curious about all the, all the ways that this process can be completely beneficial from start to finish, right? As we scale, looking at responsible mining and what that means for us and, and what that can mean for the industry as well. Are people going to go for green beaches, though? I think so. They're gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the picture is you know, cool. If you go yeah, I've to seen some. Big Island of Hawaii and you go to the Big Island of Hawaii, there's a green sand beach there called Papakalea, and it's made of olivine sand. And when you go there, it's a tourist attraction. It's a beautiful place. There are people splashing in the water and, and playing in the sand. And by the way, there's a vibrant marine ecosystem there as well. And uh, so part of our mission is to help people to see the beauty in green sand beaches, of course, not just the visual beauty, but also the beauty of the fact that these beaches are actually capturing carbon dioxide and helping to reverse climate change. As those chemical transformations happen uh, after olivine has been deployed, will the beaches remain green or will the color change? The beach will be green for as long as there's olivine there. So a, a likely model is that we will put olivine on a beach and then as the olivine weathers and washed away and dissolves in the water, we'll then go and put more olivine on that beach. You know, when, when there's a good site for doing it, then it will make sense to do that repeatedly. So as the olivine washes away, the beach will return to its normal color, but we're likely to put olivine back on that beach and make it green again. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, my imagination is fired by this. It's a very, a very neat idea. <laughs> How does it work for funding? How does someone participate? Is this mostly the businesses or organizations that you're selling or seeking donations? How are you planning on thinking about funding, especially since you're a nonprofit? Yeah, so certainly there's there's businesses and organizations that, that we're reaching out to, and Stripe is a great example of that. 
But then also we're we're asking for large and small donations from individuals. So we're raising money through a number a number of different verticals. We are accepting donations. We're also selling olive oil jewelry, which you'll see on our website. And really any donation is helpful, whether it's large or small. So there's the aspect of, of folks helping as a grassroots effort and, and donating what they can. And then there's, of course, large gifts that, that we're hoping to receive from organizations. And we are a 501 so if any listeners are interested in making a donation, then feel free to get in touch with us through, uh, through our website, and we can uh, give you all the details you need. Great. And where is this pilot beach, by so the way? We're not able to say exactly where it is at the moment. It is in the Caribbean. It's on a Caribbean island. And uh, our team has visited the beach and analyzed it and identified that it is a great site for our pilot. And so we are beginning the process of our of our pilot as we speak. By the way, one of the things that makes it such a good site is that there is one cove, which is going to be our experimental beach, where we're actually going to put olivine sand down. And then there's another cove very close by that's, that's very similar, which is going to be a control cove. So we can measure not only what happens before and during and after we put the olivine sand on the beach, but we can also compare that to what happened at a very similar beach during this whole period where there was no olivine intervention. Well, it sounds plausible to me, although, Tom, it sounds a little bit like a boondoggle. (laughs) You guys just going down there, hanging out in the Caribbean, (laughs) checking out coves. Oh, like we have to go to farmland, well, what, man. Come on. One of the nice things can't about, with that. about this process <laughs> is that the warmer the water, the faster it happens. So all of our best locations are in tropical paradise. <laughs> That's okay. We, we've grown accustomed to loving the, our, our rural hinterlands. But yeah, it's hard to compete with tropical beaches. Yeah, and just to speak to that, you know, so we have found our we found our first beach, but we are actively looking for additional experimental beaches and beach sites. So that's another kind of call to action for anyone who's listening and wants to contribute. If you know of a private beach or you have connections to, you know, maybe it's a government representative in a certain area that this might work in, any like warm beaches are kind of ideal. And if you wanted to learn more, you can go to our website and we have a, a quick form that you can fill out about which beaches would be best. Cool. I think I have one more question. I think, Kelly, this one's probably for you. Since this is so open source, Nori, we love open source tech too. And and to the degree to which we are able, we we try to live those values as a company. If you're releasing this stuff publicly, this, this information, you're a nonprofit, is there risk that others seize this idea and commercialize it in some way that you're not expecting? So you could look at that as a risk. And I think that whenever you release anything open source, there's definitely a potential for people to try it, try it out themselves. But we don't see that as such a bad thing as so long as we can set out standards for what are the right practices, the best practices to do in this field. And so long as people can buy into what is acceptable, how you can deploy one of these projects holistically and with the entire life cycle of impact in mind, then we think that's great. We want this project to scale, and that might not mean Project Vesta being the only one that does it. Of course, we are kind of the first ones out there doing it. And so by doing so, we really do feel it's incredibly important to establish best practices and establish kind of a model for how this can be done in the world so that anyone who does want to replicate it is doing so in the right way. It's a great answer. We, we've often answered that question in a similar fashion. 
We want to reverse climate change. If people are imitating what you're doing and maybe even improving on it, it's more important that we solve this problem than we as individuals or as a small company or nonprofit are successful, right? I sure hope so. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I think we're on the same page. That's That's a great attitude. I think this is really compelling. I'm so excited that you're receiving support from Stripe. And I'm sure there's other things coming down the pike for you. And there's at least one pilot that also has a neighboring cove as a control. That sounds very neat. What do you think this might be You know, a year from now, a couple of years from now? What are you looking forward to? It's a great question. And we're, we're really excited about, about the path as it moves forward. And I can sort of lay out a little bit our vision of how we think this goes. Essentially, over the course of the next couple of years, we're going to be primarily focused on the scientific research that demonstrates that this works in the wild environment. So doing our first pilot beach, doing some lab experiments, starting to do follow-up pilot beaches, which enable us to get more data and to try this in, in different environments. So that's probably what roughly the next couple of years look like. After that, we hope that the science will then have been demonstrated and we'll be able to really begin to support the deployment of this in various countries all around the world. And that will be, of course, a gradual process. But as I mentioned earlier, this is a very scalable process. And so we're looking at the idea that that this could be scaled in parallel in quite a few countries around the world at the same time. And so as we look forward, we want to hit gigaton plus scale by the end of the decade. And that is a massive amount of growth from where we are today. We just sold three kilotons, 3.3 kilotons to Stripe of negative emissions. And we're talking about scaling up a million times from there. So that's a huge amount. But we also see that part. You know, there is there is nothing that we can see ahead of us that would prevent us from pursuing that. And that's one of the reasons we're so excited about about the project. And frankly, that's that's why we exist as Project Vesta, because, you know, there was 30 years of research that had gone into enhanced weathering before Project Vesta came along. A lot of studies, you know, lab experiments, theoretical studies, you know, research on where is the olivine and how does this all work, all of this stuff. And we came along because there was limited progress towards getting these real life experiments to happen, bringing together multidisciplinary group of scientists, the funding, the government to get permits and all of that. And, and frankly, just the sort of organizational project management and drive in order to actually get this process out of the lab and onto the beach. And we've now made a lot of progress towards that already. And we already have our first pilot beach. So we feel like we're very much on on that path and we're really excited. Maybe I will add a little bit just to speak to the trees part. And that would just be to say, you know, of course we support soil carbon sequestration. Of course we support planting trees. I think that anyone who is deeply within the climate movement and isn't in recognition of the fact that we need a multitude of solutions in order to truly make a change and reverse climate change is probably not looking at the right data. It's just that we think that our solution is the one that can really be permanent, scalable, and cost-effective. And so just, yeah, hearkening wants to say thank you to everybody who's also involved in this movement. All of the solutions that are being deployed today are so necessary in order to make a change made real in this short time frame that we have as a global community. And so just wanted to touch on that. 
Terrific. I think it's a fine point. And we're definitely all of the above people here. We really need all hands on deck, as we're fond of saying. Where can people follow up with both of you individually and also learn more about Project Vesta? Yeah, so you can learn more about Project Vesta online on our website. It's um, www.projectvesta.org. We have tons of resources on there. We have a page devoted to science. So if you want to nerd out, you can go and read all of our scientific articles and journals that have been published over the last 30 years by experts in the field, as well as our plan. And you can find ways to donate on there. As I mentioned, we're seeking both large and small gifts and anything anyone can contribute certainly helps. Helps. And then if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can email our names at projectvesta.org. Are you both on Twitter as well? Tom is on Twitter, I believe. I'm not on Twitter. I'm also not really on Twitter. Why, why aren't you on Twitter? As little screen time as I can get, the better. And uh, these days I'm on my screen pretty much all day long. So I just try and do as little social networking as possible. We do have a Project Vesta Twitter, though. Um, We have a Project Vesta Twitter, a Facebook, and an Instagram. So you can reach us all on there as well. We're pretty kindred on that one. Uh, I get that. And then, Tom, I'll I'll link to both your organization's uh, social media links, but also to you personally. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Tom? No, th- thank you very much, Russ. Just to uh, just to say thank you so much for having us on. Uh, we really appreciate this, and it's uh, been a lovely conversation. I'm happy we we're able to do it. Thanks for making time to to come on the show. And... Yeah, thanks so much, Russ, and thank you for all the work that you and your team are doing at Nori. It's really inspiring to see the way that it's taken off and the leadership that you're taking in the space. Oh, thanks. I mean, I mostly just run my mouth on the internet. Uh, <laughs> does that does that still count sure <laughs> okay i'll count it then sure <laughs> what the heck? well thank you so much for listening if you like the show please rate and review us on apple Podcasts, stitcher itunes tell your friends and thank you so much for listening Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.